about this scheme? I think the carbon credit definitely important because we, the whole world is lit um, to really internalize the carbon externality into the business decision. Once we price in the carbon emission, and then it will really encourage the new technology to develop because at that time, if we put the carbon um, pricing into the balance sheet, it will really change the investor decision-making process. Okay, well, Lawrence, thank you very much indeed for giving us an update there. That's Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange, on the phone from the COP27 Summit at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in Australia, that's uh, the ASX 200 is down a third of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has slid 1% shortly after the open. The Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to slip about 240, 250 points or so at the open. And I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock to tell you more about that. Coming up after the news is back chats with Janice Wong and Janice, uh, Jenny Lamb, the weather forecast. Uh, it's going to be fine. Maximum temperature about 28 degrees, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to remain fine and rather warm during the day in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 24 degrees, 82% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Tom Warden with the half-hour news. The founder of Hong Kong Outdoors, Martin Williams, has agreed with calls from a lawmaker to reopen campsites. DAB lawmaker Ben Chan made the call yesterday after the recent reopening of public barbecue pits as the government slowly eases pandemic measures. Mr. Williams criticized what he called a mishmash of pandemic policies and told RTHK it didn't make sense for the government to allow up to 240 people to attend a banquet while not allowing access to outdoor campsites. The amount of outdoor transmission is tiny. So the fact that you can go to maybe a banquet with maybe 240 people indoors, which is much more dangerous for catching COVID, than go camping in a pretty wild place. It's just an the barbecuing. There's never really been any scientific soundness or common sense to this. President Joe Biden has delivered his first remarks since Tuesday's midterm elections. He said the vote was a good day for democracy and voters had spoken clearly about their concerns, including inflation. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. Republicans are expected to take control of the House of Representatives, but Mr. Biden said a giant so-called red wave did not happen, as had been predicted. The president said he was prepared to work with the Republicans and would invite leaders of both parties to the White House to discuss how that could be achieved. Just weeks after President Putin announced he was annexing Kherson and that it would be forever Russian, Moscow has said it's pulling its troops from the Ukrainian city. Kherson is the only provincial capital Russia has managed to capture since the start of its assault. But over the past weeks, Ukraine has been conducting a counteroffensive to push them from the area. The move follows a televised meeting with Russia's military commander in Ukraine, Sergei Sorivikin, who recommended what he called a difficult decision. 
I propose that we take up defensive positions along the left bank of the Dnipro River. I understand that this is a very difficult decision. At the same time, we will save, most importantly, the lives of our troops and the overall combat effectiveness of the troops. In addition, it will free up some forces who can then be used for active operations, including offensive ones, on other fronts in the zone of the operation. A Ukrainian presidential adviser has reacted cautiously to the Russian announcement. Bao Tong, who served as secretary to the former Communist Party leader Zhao Ziyang, has died in Beijing at the age of 90. Writing on Twitter, his children said Bao had passed away peacefully. Bao was a member of the 13th Central Committee of the Communist Party. Both Zhao and Bao fell from grace over the 1989 student protests on the mainland. You're listening to the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're looking at midterm elections in the United States. Control of Congress is still hanging in the balance, but early predictions of a red wave of Republican victories has proven to be unfounded so far. So the Senate is on knife edge while the Republicans look poised to gain a narrow majority in the House. And what does that mean for the future of American politics? What will a likely split U.S. government mean in the global arena and for China? After 9.15 a.m., we'll look at a call by Greenpeace for government departments to do more to cut carbon emissions. So let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us, of course, and our number is 233-88266. Joining our discussion this morning, we have David Hendry, Assistant Professor at the University of Science and Technologies Division of Social Science. Ross Feingold, Political Risk Analyst and former Asia Chairman of Republicans Abroad. And Steve Oaken, CEO of APAC Advisors. He also served in the Clinton administration and is a veteran of a number of Democratic presidential campaigns. Good morning to you all and thanks for joining us on the program. Um, now, Mr. Feingold, many people expected a red wave, but it turned out to be more of a ripple, didn't it? I suppose uh, this is going to be a topic of conversation in the post-election period that uh, the Republicans were very optimistic uh, looking at the history where in, in a midterm uh, especially in, in the first term of a presidency, there, there typically has been large shift in the number of seats, but that hasn't always been the case. I mean, even as recently as 2018, uh, the Republicans did lose control uh, of the House, but actually the number of seats that the Democrats flipped in 2018 when they took control was not as much as they expected. And, and in fact, uh, two years ago, the Democrats maintained control of, of the House they took control of the White House and the Senate, but they actually lost a few more seats in the House. So uh, not not the ways that, that the more optimistic Republicans may have hoped for, but uh, I, I, I'd be cautious about buying into the narrative that the Republicans did poorly, uh, whether it's up, up the ballot, governors, senators, or down the ballot, uh, House members or, or other offices, such as secretaries of state. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Steve Oaken, um, with... Uh, the you, you work with the uh, Democrats for many years. Why didn't this red wave happen? Look, this this red wave did not happen because the Republican Party is dominated 
by Donald Trump, who is historically unpopular. He handpicked nominees who were extremists and who were election deniers, and everybody he picked in close races basically lost. The Republicans, by all historical numbers, should have gotten the House in a large number, should have taken over the Senate, because Americans don't like single-party control. They don't like one party having control of the House, Senate, and White House. It usually only lasts for two years, and then it flips. And it should have flipped the House and the Senate. But it is because the Republicans nominated, in many instances, extremist candidates, the election changed from being a referendum on Joe Biden and the Democrats, and Joe Biden's historically unpopular going into a midterm. The economy is terrible, yet Americans, in large part, cared about democracy, and they voted to keep the Democrats in the Senate, it looks like, and the House very narrowly probably go to Republicans. So it, it, as Joe Biden said, this was a good night for America, it was a good night for democracy, and it's because the Republicans allowed this election to become a choice between the Democrats and the Trump-led Republicans, as opposed to a referendum on the Democrats, which it should have been, and if it was, the Republicans would have done much, much better. So, Mr. Oaken, would you say it's a victory for the Democrats? I mean, although it is poised to lose the House. Uh, so well, it's a historical victory for the Democrats. It's the best a Democratic president has ever done in his first midterm since John Kennedy. Um, and, you know, people were saying, oh, Joe Biden made a huge mistake. He was talking about democracy, you know, just days ahead of the vote, as opposed to focusing on the economy and the inflation. Well, you know what? Joe Biden was right. Of course, economy was the number one issue for voters. But the number two issue for voters in the, in the AP exit poll, it was democracy. And when you had hundreds hundreds of Republicans running against democracy, refusing to say that they would concede if they lost, questioning the validity of the 2020 election when there's no question it was a valid election. That is what led the Democrats to have a very good night. Now, if they keep the Senate and, and lose the House by a tiny bit, it's certainly a moral victory. It, now, if the Republicans are still going to be in control of the House and it's still going to be a, a grueling process and we're going to have gridlock, but sure, it's a very good night for Democrats, no matter what happens from here on out. Yeah, so Ross Feingold, um, you know, Joe Biden was asked a couple of hours ago about this rivalry between Donald Trump and uh, DeSantis. He said it would be fun to see them tear, tear the party apart. Is that going to happen? It certainly will. If DeSantis uh, does decide he wants to challenge uh, former President Trump, in a primary, uh, you know, the bigger or the threshold, threshold question here is when do these two gentlemen make that announcement? Uh, Trump, uh, uh, you know, he has all the advantages of, of waiting. He's got name recognition. He has an organization. He's got money. But he seems very set on advancing that announcement, possibly as soon as next week. Uh, then DeSantis will have to decide whether he wants to challenge. What uh, we, we still have to keep something in mind. If Trump does... Uh, decide to join a Republican primary. Uh, he's going to be a juggernaut. Uh, he, he's still popular with with the base, uh, notwithstanding the result that wasn't as, as optimistic as Republicans 
would have wanted. Uh, there's still a lot of Trump, Trump supporters uh, who hold elected office, enthusiastic supporters who, who will immediately say they, they endorse him. So, yes, it, it'll be a, a big fight, uh, but uh, Trump might jump out ahead of DeSantis. He might ultimately decide uh, to wait. Uh, but it's going to be a very tough decision for DeSantis whether to challenge Trump still. All right. So let's go to uh, Professor Hendry. I, I, I just want to okay, – I just – Okay. Oh, can I just jump in on one thing? There's also one, one other short, one other thing. Trump's about to get indicted. He has committed so many violations of law that the Justice Department and, and state governments are looking at that he believes that if he runs, it becomes much more difficult to indict someone who's running for president as opposed to indicting a former president. So the legal jeopardy that Donald Trump has put himself in over and over and over again is also probably going to play into his decision of whether or not he should announce uh, to run for president. All right, let's go to uh, Professor Hendry. What's your assessment? I mean, after listening uh, to uh, what Mr. Oaken is saying, what Mr. Feingold is saying, I mean, do you agree with Mr. Oaken that uh, the red wave didn't happen because uh, of Donald Trump and uh, that uh, this is a a victory for the Democrats? So I I would um, second a little bit of both of of the guests. So I would would say um, it it was clearly a disappointing night for Republicans uh, going... um, especially with the polls going in, um, and just basically what the fundamentals of the economy uh, were saying. So um, among economic issues, uh, at the top of voters' minds was inflation, and if, and if a voter was thinking about inflation, all of the pre-election polls and exit polls are showing that those uh, people were much more likely to vote for the Republicans. It was these other issues that were kind of unique to this election that basically, I think, held the ground for, uh, for the Democrats. So um, I, I would say it, it could be thought of as a moral victory for the Democrats. They will, um, they will have some of that uh, behind them, but um, the, the Republicans are probably still going to win, and that, that means a lot. And the, this, um, the interesting thing, I think, is that these people in the Republican Party who are denying the results of the uh, 2020 election or denying that they're valid, uh, they did tend to lose a lot in these close races, but there are a lot of them that are going to be in Congress because there are just so many races that just are not close and are deep red or deep blue. And in a lot of these deep red districts, um, those candidates also denied the election. They won handily, and now they're going to probably be in the majority in the chamber and that's going to um that's going to create a situation not just for uh the for the democratic president trying to get things done but it's probably going to uh create a little bit of chaos within the republican caucus in the in the chamber Mm-hmm. Uh, mr feingold so professor henry felt that inflation was a factor but what about what about uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, uh, Joe Biden is saying that voters basically have sent an unmistakable message about abortion rights. Do you think that pl- played a, a, a part in um, today's results? I, I think that's another issue that uh, still remains to be seen because there, there, there was clearly uh, a, a great reaction to that 
to the to the Dobbs decision in the weeks after it was made over July and August. There's a lot of data uh, about uh, women registering to vote. In fact, women registering to vote for the first time, and and in certain states as well. But ultimately, the way it seems to have played out is a lot of that enthusiasm occurred in states that uh, we might call blue states or states where uh, abortion rights actually weren't a threat. Uh, so more people to register, register to vote in reaction in, say, uh, California or New York, it really didn't make a big difference. And in fact, California and New York are actually two states where the Republicans are probably going to flip a whole bunch of House seats. Uh, that, again, we normally think of those as as blue states, but but uh, I would also put abortion rights in with uh, the broader uh, group of issues that we often call kind of cultural war issues. So whether that's uh, what it means to be an American and immigration policy, abortion rights, LGBT rights, gun rights, it, we see this hyper partisanship on on, on those issues, uh, and there's almost no middle ground, unfortunately, between Democrats and Republicans. And those will be big issues in the next presidential election as well. But again, you know, once we leave the big cities, you know, we leave San Francisco, LA, Houston, Miami, New York City, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, we go into the middle middle of the United States in a lot of places, the, the, the Republican view, the conservative view is still the, the prevailing view. And keeping that in mind, Going into the next presidential election cycle, uh, if you're the Republicans, whether you're Trump or DeSantis, and you look at this result, maybe it wasn't the, the red wave, but uh, you still got to be optimistic from an electoral college uh, perspective. Uh, very competitive for the Republicans, going whoever the candidate is for president. And, and I think these issues are, are going to be uh, something we're going to hear a lot about. Uh, but, but they're appealing to the base. They're, you know, they're not going to try and persuade Democrats with these issues. But Republicans will keep talking about those issues from the, the Republican or conservative perspective. And they'll be persuasive. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate you know, DeSantis with his don't say gay law or, or, or what Republicans have done with abortion rights. Very persuasive for conservative voters. Steve Oaken, was it a culture war, like Mr. Feingold said? Did the results well, reflect you, a culture war? They do to a degree. And you have to split the Republican Party from the MAGA Republicans, as, as Joe Biden refers to them. But most people believe that there should be some allowance for an abortion. Um, it is only the extreme view which says that there shall be no abortion in any instance whatsoever, including if the woman is raped, including if a, if a, a, a young girl is, is impregnated because of incest, that you are going to make those people, those women, carry the pregnancy to term under those state laws. It's that extreme position amongst the Republicans that you see in multiple states that is driving this this, the, the more of independent people, the moderate Republicans, away from the Republican Party. And so, yes, Donald Trump appeals to that extreme base, talking about America first, talking about Mer making America great again, having, you know, be being basically racist in some of the statements that you see coming out of Republicans, being anti-Semitic that you see coming out of Republicans who are sitting in Congress. And so, yes, these culture wars drive up the MAGA base. It gets you these extreme candidates, and then they lose in general elections that they should not have lost otherwise. 
if the Republicans had put up somebody who was more of a traditional mainstream Republican. And so the Republican Party should should be going through a reckoning saying we need to look at where we are as a party and not let it be taken over by Donald Trump and the people who are in his area where the focus is on culture wars. Because if you focus on culture wars, you are going to lose nationally. Now, Ross is exactly right. There is an electrical, electoral college bias, so it's very possible that Donald Trump runs again, loses the popular vote for the third consecutive time, yet still gets to be president. So, yes, the bias in the system allows somebody like Donald Trump to be president, and that bias isn't going away because that's just inherent in how our country is now set up. Yeah, Mr. Feingold, what do you think? Donald Trump is, I mean, many of his MAGA supporters did not do well in the midterms. Is he now just a liability that's going to just split the GOP apart? Well, again, I, I think that that still remains to be seen once we get some, some of the results. I, I mean, if we, we take, we take uh, Arizona as an example, and, and if we consider Blake Masters, the Republican Senate candidate, a MAGA uh, Republican, and the governor candidate, uh, 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 a MAGA Republican as well, they're, they're behind right now, but they're still counting votes, and they're actually not very far behind. And a Democrat governor uh, is incumbent might get knocked off in Nevada. Uh, so, uh, and the other aspect to keep in mind is is uh, we have to be fair to former President Trump, despite uh, his flaws. He's a great messenger, and he's already messaging this. Right? He's already be prepared for for the accusation that you know, well, the candidates you endorse they're too extreme. And basically, his message is going to be, uh, well, I endorse them, but you know, if they didn't out-hustle the other candidate, that's not my fault. And uh, I think we're going to see some of that. So, so again, if we look at a close race like Hobbs and Lake in Arizona, where, where Lake is an election designer, a denier and, and a MAGA Republican, uh, she still might win, or she might only lose by a little bit. And that... that that's probably not going to be enough for the Republican Party to have a reckoning where they're going to say we, we went too too extreme. And you know, if we, we flip that around and we look at the, the Democrats, the narrative for, for a good portion of, of the past two years has, has been that the Democrats went too far to the left. There were too many uh, Democrats talking about uh, uh, progressive issues and, and, and Such as what? Uh, defund the police. And, and recently no one's talking about that anymore and kind of moved on to talk about inflation and, uh, and other topics. So, again, I, I think it remains to be seen whether there's going to be any reckoning or the Republicans are just going to stick with Trump and, and MAGA policies. Uh, at the moment, I still think it's going to be the latter. We're not going to see any change in, in the Republican approach to upcoming elections. What do, what do you think, Professor Hendry? How much of a liability is Donald Trump? Um, so I think uh, at this point it's unclear, and it's because the, the races where um, the Democrats tend to be focusing on that they got a lot of victories out of these close races where Donald Trump endorsed the candidate or where the the candidate, the Republican candidate, is super pro MAGA. In a lot of these places, it was still really close, even though maybe perhaps the majority of them lost. So there's this, it, this uh, festering issue that the Democrats are going to have to continue to deal with. Uh, that this is a former president who is very popular among a segment of the country 
when he endorses candidates in a, in a general election, there's a lot of people that are going to find that toxic, but he also probably drove, uh, he, he was probably a driving force behind why many of these races were so close as well by getting people out. So in the next presidential election, if he decides to run, he'll not just be endorsing candidates, he'll be himself on the ballot, assuming he wins the Republican nomination, which I, I think he very very likely would if he does decide to run. Um, so there, there, I think there's a, a real danger in uh, for Democrats in looking at these results and um, getting too comfortable about the fact that uh, Trump-endorsed candidates didn't seem to fare that well in the close election. Right. There, there's a little bit of both uh, going on. And Professor Henry, of course, uh, Donald Trump is not on the ballot this time. But there, I mean, like you mentioned, there were many Trump-endorsed candidates, and the performance uh, would, get, would uh, sort of uh, give us an idea of his uh, political strength. I mean, how would you rate uh, Trump's political strength right now? Definitely weaker than when he was in office. Uh, but among the Republican base, I, I would say it's actually still quite uh, quite strong. Um, it, I think it's a little bit difficult to tell at this point. Um, but the 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 yeah. So so the the, the Trump endorsed candidates seem to have uh, done actually pretty well close in these close races, but they didn't come out on top. I would say in a, in a majority of them, that's what it's looking like at this point. Um, but the fact that it was so close means that uh, this is this is going to be a continuing a continuing phenomenon for the short term, at least. Right. Uh, Steve Oaken, you know... Uh, I, I just, yeah. oh, oh. Sorry. Steve Oaken... Look at the results, right? In Georgia, you had a mainstream Republican governor win, and then you have a Democratic senator when you split tickets, because when the mainstream Republican like Brian Kemp, gets nominated, he wins. And when you nominate somebody like Herschel Walker, that's going to go to runoff. He, he doesn't win. Look at New Hampshire. You have a, a mainstream Republican governor. Um, he wins. And then you have a Democratic senator win because you have a MAGRA Republican handpicked by Donald Trump to be the senator. So we see the real-life examples already of the ticket splitting that the Republicans, when they nominate a, a mainstream conservative Republican, they win. When they nominate... And they, and and the hand-picked ones by Donald Trump do worse. So we know it already. We don't have to wait and analyze this. We can see it in real time. Yeah. So, well, so New Hampshire's a really interesting case because uh, uh, the Republican candidate, a retired general, is not what we would historically call a, a New England Republican. It tended to be very moderate, uh, kind of like former Massachusetts governor is now a senator from, from Utah. Uh, but he, he did pretty well, especially keeping in mind that, that Mitch McConnell, the, the, the Republican leader in the Senate, who has access to an enormous amount of money, basically gave up on the guy, uh, 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 Don Baldick, gave up on him and didn't put much resources into that race. But the guy still did, did quite well. So, again, I, I, I'd still be cautious about saying you know, Republicans running on the MAGA line uh, are, 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 are uh, you know, damaged. Uh, they're still very competitive. Okay. Um, yeah, but they, but Russ, they should have won. He did worse. He should have won. That, there should have been so many more Republican victories, and that's what the Republican Party should recognize. 
If you nominate a mainstream conservative Republican, you can win. If, if you let Donald Trump handpick your nominees, you have a much more difficult chance of winning and, and a much obvious more chance of losing. And that's what happened yesterday. Yeah, and Mr. Mr. Franco, I mean, Donald Trump, he is embroiled in a number of, of, of uh, litigation, of legal issues. It, going forward, is, is that going to be a problem if he is nominated as a, as a candidate for 2024? Oh, certainly. It, 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 it takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of money at lawyer fees. There'll be embarrassing revelations that might come out. We should also keep in mind, uh, he faces not only uh, criminal, uh, potential criminal liability, but there are a number of civil lawsuits that are proceeding against him as well over a variety of issues. So whether it's on the civil side or the criminal side, uh, he certainly has uh, litigation risk. Uh, but uh, again, we have to give him credit for his messaging skills, because no matter what happens on his messaging skills, such side, he's going to say they're coming after me for political purposes. And, and his supporters will agree. But, but, but uh, so you don't think the Republicans need to reflect on uh, this, despite what happened in the last couple of days. Uh, now, um, what, what do you think, Mr. Oaken? Um, if, if Trump declares his candidacy in the coming week, and, and he basically he's hinted that he'll say something in the coming week. Is it just going to be that much more damaging you know, to the Republicans? James, James Sorry, you got cut off there. Hello? Okay, Professor Hendry, are you there? Yes. Yes, so, so you know, uh, Mr. Oaken is saying it's yeah, time that... the Republican the, Party? I'm sorry, who's speaking now? We're a little bit confused here. Okay, I, I think some of our lines are, are, are a little bit unclear. Let's go back to Professor Hendry, who is actually in Hong Kong. Are you there, Professor Hendry? Yes, I am. Yes, okay. So, so basically, the... the uh, Ms. Oaken, who's with the Democrats, is saying it's time the Republicans reflect on this um, because the, it's, it's split between the, the extremists and the moderates. And Mr. Feingold is saying, no, um, Trump still has some, you know, he's a thesis, he all has right. strong messages. All right, all right. I, I'm afraid, uh, Professor Hendry, you'll have to answer that after <laughs> we take a short break for the news. And uh, we will return to our discussion in three minutes' time. And uh, just a reminder that after 9.15, we will speak to a Green Peace campaign to find out more about their study on carbon neutrality in government departments. And uh, the weather right now, um, it will be mainly fine. The top temperature will be around 28 degrees. Right now it's 24 degrees and the relative humidity is 81%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. This morning, we're looking at the U.S. midterm elections and still with us on the program is David Hendry, Assistant Professor at the University of Science and Technology's Division of Social Science, Ross Feingold, Political Risk Analyst and former Asia Chairman of Republicans Abroad, and Steve Oaken, CEO of APAC Advisors, who served in the Clinton administration. And he is a veteran of a number of Democratic presidential campaigns. So, uh, before the break, we were um, in the middle of uh, talking to Professor Hendry about the, the split or whether there's a split between the extremists and the moderates and the Republican parties. And Mr. Feingold was saying, well, uh, Donald Trump, he, he has a certain appeal because his, his messages are so clear. Professor Hendry, let's, let's talk about some of those messages. Um, let's talk about foreign policy. 
how much of a difference do you think it will make um, to to Republicans' um, foreign policy in in Asia, in China specifically, whether or not Trump comes back? I, I think he he was unique in uh, being uh, singularly, uh, not singularly, but 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 heavily focused on uh, China and a couple of other places, and heavily focused on. Um, outsourcing as as an issue in, in global trade so sort of um appealing to his base by uh, attacking other countries in a way that uh previous uh previous uh, especially republican candidates had not really done in the past um that that sort of rhetoric i think still resonates with the people who would uh who would support him so to the extent that the current Republicans, even in the absence of Donald Trump, are uh, taking up the mantle of Trumpism, I think that that issue of being a little bit, uh, say, harsh toward China and a few other countries, that kind of works for them. But I don't, I don't think that that in itself, just the the rhetoric of being um, of being a little bit harsh toward China, I don't think that that. It, is a big driver of support. I think uh, much more of the the MAGA base, who Trump and Trump acolytes really appeal to, are much more driven by uh, domestic uh, cultural issues. What about Mr. Feingold? Are you there? Yes. Yes. So, so um, what can we expect um, in terms of uh, policy towards Asia, depending on whether or not Trump comes back? Uh, I, I, I would say the, the issue here is not necessarily whether or not Trump comes back, but uh, it's, it's what the House majority and potentially a Senate majority will do. Uh, but then on the side of that will be Trump as a presidential candidate also talking about some of these issues. Uh, at, at a minimum, we know that the House majority across different committees, uh, committees that deal with everything from technology policy, military policy, foreign policy, education, they are all going to be holding hearings and, and looking into every aspect of Biden administration foreign policy. Uh, obviously, Ukraine and, and the amounts spent on Ukraine is something that has recently become a contentious issue. Uh, but, but China is going to be a main one. And, and uh, no matter what, actions the Biden administration has taken in the last couple of years to try to show that it could be as tough on China as, as the Trump administration was. Uh, House Republicans have made it very, very clear that they are going to be uh, spending a lot of time on China issues. And then, as I said, on the side of that, uh, assuming Trump is a presidential candidate again, he'll be talking about China as well. He'll, he'll probably be focused on the jobs aspect, uh, the trade aspect. Uh, but in, in, in a Republican House, they're going to be looking at very granular policy issues. Uh, you know, some of it will be just for political purposes, certainly. Uh, but but uh, the, the administration, the Biden team, they better be prepared to spend a lot of time sitting in hearings explaining their foreign policies and specifically their China policies. And uh, Professor Hendry, going back to you, I mean, we've so far we've been talking about some of the results from the midterms. Uh, what about um, warnings of violence ahead of the midterms elections? Uh, what does that show? Is the U.S. pretty much divided? The U.S. is very divided. I don't think that's um, that's a controversial statement to make. But um, the the threats of violence 
were, I think, uh, scary, then then election day ended up being quite uneventful. I'm I'm not really sure what to make of that, but I don't think that uh, this um, this underlying uh, anger, where you have uh, a, a country a country that's that angry, where people can legally own guns. I, uh, that that certainly hasn't gone away just because the uh, the election day a couple of days ago ended up being relatively uneventful. That 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 issue still exists, um, and I yes I, I don't I don't really know what to predict in terms of that. Uh, and do you think this will? Uh... It's, it's just, oh, can, oh uh, it's, it's Steve. Okay. I just want to pick up on a point that that, that, that Ross made about what the Republicans are going to do in the House when it comes to China, and uh, the Republicans already said what they're going to. And, and fully expect them to do it. They're going to hold hearing after hearing after hearing on China. And it's, it's not just going to be on, on government to government. It's going to just be on Biden's foreign policy, which, of course, they're going to do. They're also going to look at what our business is doing in China. Why are U.S. businesses so engaged in China? How are U.S. businesses and in their investing helping the Chinese government when it comes uh, to advancing their military, when it comes to advancing um, the, the key economy, the, the key sectors of the 21st century, like AI, they're also going to focus on Hong Kong, and they're going to ask, you know, U.S. business leaders and say, hey, you come to Washington and you tell us how important ESG, environmental, social, and governance is, and you talk about all of these things that you're trying to advance society, yet you're meeting with the leader of Hong Kong who has been sanctioned by the U.S. government for violating human rights. So why can you do one thing in Washington and another thing in Hong Kong and another thing in China? So it is going to be a very tumultuous uh, two years for anyone, not just government, but, but for businesses that are, that are doing business in China. And then I would say the last point on Trump and the real concern people have in the business community and governments certainly in Southeast Asia, where, where I live, is that if Trump wins or another America first candidate wins, we're going to go back to the Trump playbook, which is it's all about bilateralism. It's all about the, the United States. And it, and you ignore partners, you ignore friends, you ignore allies. And so everything Biden's trying to do now, like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, people are going to question whether they should continue to engage in that, both business and government, because Trump or another America First candidate is going to reverse what has been happening for the past two years. So it's real consequential in the short term and long term. So you're saying it's it, it isolated. If I may follow up on something Steve said, is it, it, it's, it's going to be a struggle, not just for American businesses, but, but governments uh, in this part of the world, whether in Northeast Asia or Southeast Asia or in other parts of the world, such as Europe and the Middle East as well. And, and Governments have a lot of experience dealing with this. Uh, they have a lot of experience engaging with a divided U.S. government where the, the administration is from one party in the House or both the House and the Senate are from, from a different party. But a lot of that was in a different era, of not as much hyper-partisanship. We've always had partisanship in the U.S., but now it's kind of hyper-partisanship. Um, and, and some governments are just better at that, and some are going to be really bad at that, and they're really going to struggle. Uh, you know, how friendly are we? do we become with the McCarthy leadership team in the House uh, at the risk of alienating the Biden administration, or, or vice versa? Do we maintain uh, more communication with the administration and less so uh, with, with a Republican? Republican House or potentially a Republican 
Senate. And I think we're going to see a lot of governments struggle with this uh, in the coming months. All right, Professor Henry, earlier we talked about uh, how uh, the U.S. is uh, still pretty much uh, divided. And uh, um, looking at the the White House race in uh, 2024, do you think this will uh, make things more complicated? Yes. uh, So it should have it should the the results from the other day uh, should provide some sort of lesson for Donald Trump that should make him, uh, I would say, less likely to announce in this in this announcement that he's um, set to make next week or so. uh, It should make him uh, question the uh, his his electoral clout a little bit. Uh, but I'm not sure that it will. He's he's a he's a unique individual, and it's it's not clear what lesson he's he's taking from this. Um, so, if he gets it, decides to get in the race, I think he's a juggernaut that will eliminate the competition. Um, it it would be strange. Like DeSantis in Florida is very popular right now. It would be strange if if Donald Trump announced and then DeSantis tried to ta- challenge him. If Donald Trump decides not to run, I think uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida is the clear front runner um, and basically makes uh, makes Trumpism sort of more respectable. And I think that um, uh, he he harkens back to a much more mainstream version of of. Republicanism. All right. Uh, Professor Hendry, I know you have to uh, go soon. I have a message here uh, from, from a listener, T.C. Jung. He has uh, three thoughts uh, on the uh, uh, midterm elections. Maybe you can respond to them. Um, he says, number one, the primary system has a lot to do with the polarization in American politics, particularly states with an open system where voters in the state don't need to be a member of a party to vote in the primary. And number two, in the Senate election of my neighboring state, Washington, the Democratic candidate, Pat Murray, spent 20 million U.S. dollars on her campaign. Her Republican opponent spent 14 million dollars. The amount of money one needs to run for election isn't healthy of democracy. And uh, his last point, Alaska's voting system may offer a good way to counter the the polarization in American politics. Adopted in 2020, Alaska uses a preferential system in which voters rank each candidate. This uh, requires candidates to be less extreme. And uh, that's uh, from our listener, T.C. Jung. Professor Hendry, any comments on that? I I would mostly agree with the the latter two comments that um, the amount of money spent in American ele- elections is obscene. I think any anyone looking at this from the outside has to think there, there must be a better way. Um, I also think uh, that the, the first-past-the-post uh, plurality system does indeed contribute to uh, a lot of uh, political polarization and trying out things like what they've done in Alaska, what they've done in Maine with, with um, different forms of ranked choice voting. I think uh, those could be positive steps. They're relatively new to Americans, so we have to see how they pan out. Um, regarding the first comment, um, the, I, I do think the primary system does contribute to political polarization, but I don't think it's necessarily driven by these states where people don't have to register. I think um, I, I would say the biggest driving force is that um, America is quite unique in that the, the drawing of districts is a political process. 
and um, and so the, it's the, the gerrymandering has has quite a bit to do with it, and also uh, sorting of Republicans and Democrats into different geographic areas has has quite a bit to do with it. All right. So, Professor Hendry, I'll let you go now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, David Hendry, Assistant Professor at the University of Science and Technologies Division of Social Science. All right, uh, Mr. Oaken and uh, Mr. Feingold. I mean, earlier in the program, we, we talked about uh, some interesting um, races, like uh, you mentioned earlier, New Hampshire. And uh, I, I know like in the midterms, there, there are also some newcomers. I mean, Massachusetts will have its uh, first lesbian governor. The uh, U.S. Congress will welcome its first uh, Generation Z member. And uh, Sarah Huckleby Sanders will be Arkansas's first female governor. And uh, as we know, she was uh, Trump's former White House press secretary. Um, uh, maybe, uh, Mr. Feingold, what do you think of this uh, uh, diversity? Uh, historically, or certainly in recent elections, the Republicans have been labeled as the party lacking in diversity. They, they've tried to address that uh, a little bit. They, they did have more minority candidates uh, in, in recent election cycles, as well as more female candidates for, for the House. Uh, is that enough to... Uh, convince voters that this truly is a party of, of diversity. Well, the interesting thing there is uh, uh, Hispanic support in some places, specifically in Florida and, and uh, Texas as well. Uh, maybe even in Nevada for Republicans has actually been increasing. So Republicans have definitely made some inroads with with. Uh, uh, minorities and groups of voters that, that historically did not uh, have a high level of support. Uh, so they, oh, that, that's a good thing. It should be celebrated. Uh, you know, around, around the country, uh, Democrats having uh, more diverse candidates, uh, first lesbian governor in Massachusetts. Uh, again, you know, the Democrats have just been you know, uh, at the forefront of that as compared to the Republicans. Um, and, and in a, a, a real blue state like Massachusetts, uh, you know, that, that's clearly appreciated by the voters. Steve Oaken, do you see that, that this diversity is a shape of things to come in American politics? No question. It, it makes the country stronger. Um, you get better candidates when you open to everybody. Um, it, and you, you want to have that diversity when it comes uh, to making decisions in the government. Um, and so I think you, you're going to see some like rising stars. You have the first African-American governor of Maryland um, and a, a, a black lieutenant governor of Maryland. You know, from Maryland. All right. Uh, unfortunately... Mr. Oaken, we're losing you there. We can't really hear you. Um, so we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Um, and that's uh, Steve Oaken, CEO of APAC Advisors, who served in the Clinton administration. And uh, also many thanks to Ross Feingold, political risk analyst and a former Asia chairman of Republicans Abroad. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. It's uh, now coming up to 19 minutes past nine, and it's time to turn to our final topic today, and that's about a, a new Greenpeace study on a carbon neutrality in government departments. To tell us more, we're now joined on the line by Tom Ng, a Greenpeace campaigner. Good morning, Mr. Ng. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, can you tell us uh, about your study's findings? Well, we did a study regarding like uh, how the government performs on carbon neutrality. So two years ago, the Hong Kong government said that the whole Hong Kong will achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 as a goal. And last year, they also announced a uh, carbon action plan saying that how are we going to achieve that. 
um, afterwards, we noticed that the Hong Kong government has been doing a lot of promotion, education, stuff like that, to tell the general public, especially the business sector, ask, uh, asking them or encourage them to, like, setting carbon neutrality goals, carbon reduction, carbon reduction goals, such as, such as those. And then we look into the government. We don't see such goals for the government themselves. So they are asking the general public, the business sector, to set goals, but they don't have one for themselves. And then we look into different departments. We also don't see that from our research. Um, so that's uh, something we found out in our research, that the government themselves and also the department, each of the departments, do not have a carbon neutrality goal. Yeah, so, so you're saying there's basically a lack of definition of what they mean by carbon reduction targets, right? Um, not really. Like, the carbon reduction target is for the whole Hong Kong society. But uh, in order to reach that target, we need, like, a lot of stakeholders to work together. That's including you and me. That's including the business sector. But that's also including the government right. themselves. So what concrete action are you saying? Are, are, we, are we saying switching to electric cars? Are we saying reduce uh, waste volume? What, what concrete action are you thinking we need? Well, we think that Hong Kong, the government themselves, need to have a target for themselves. They have a lot of different measures that they know what to do. They know what is needed to uh, reduce carbon emission, like uh, like those you said, like uh, re- uh, using EV, using electric car, or like reducing energy usage. They know all this, but they don't have a goal for themselves to achieve, like by when they're gonna like uh, carbon neutrality or net zero whatsoever. They don't have such goals. So, what so, would you like to see them do? What, what what kind of what kind of action do you want to see them so what commit the action to? I would say is an example from Singapore I would say that so in Singapore they have a net zero target by 2050 and the government take their role as a, a leader they will have a target for the government themselves that will achieve net zero five years earlier than the whole city such so as by doing what um, such as by doing what? Um, they have different goals, like different time plans. They have a clearer timeline that uh, by 2030, they will like reduce how much carbon and reduce how much energy, uh, reduce how much uh, usage of waste and uh, cars, such as such as. And we don't see that in Hong Kong. So you earlier you said the government has set a target for Hong Kong to achieve carbon neutrality before 2050. And then now you just mentioned the Singapore example. So are you saying the government should set a, a timetable for themselves to uh, achieve carbon neutrality in like uh, what, 2045 or something like that? Well, um, that would be great. But uh, at, at the moment, they don't have a target for themselves. So that's the keyword. We want them to have a target for themselves first. And we, of course, we expect that target will be more aggressive than the target the Hong Kong government sets for the whole society. Right. Did you find out why they don't have a target for themselves? Well, that's a question for them. Uh, we have this report. We try to find the target that they have in. Uh, they have if they have any target from their report, or even we like ask them uh, using the code of in- access to information. We ask like over seventy-five departments, and none of them give us information about like they have a target. So um, we don't know why they don't have a target and we wish they have a target. What about in the greater community? What, what kind of measures would you like to see to, to make us more progressive towards carbon neutrality? Well, um, the three main source of greenhouse gas in Hong Kong would be energy, transportation and waste. Uh, uh, and waste, yes, that's free. And, um, for each department and and also the whole government, we think that they have target. They need to have target for each of them. 
when they say the measures, they have to have a number that we can like uh, is measurable measures and measurable target is needed. Um, because in right now, like when I ask, uh, when I use the code of access to, of information and ask them like what measures you have for carbon reduction, they just tell me that they will use more electricity car, or they just tell me that they will reduce energy. But they don't have a number saying that how much energy they're going to reduce by when and. Without these measurable number uh, measures or targets, like the society cannot chase if the government is doing anything or not. Also, uh, when they ask the and when when the government promotes the idea of carbon neutrality to the business sector, they also ask or encourage the uh, corporates to set measurable targets, and they're not doing that to themselves. So we want like measurable targets and measures that are traceable, that are measurable. Such as what? Num- number of solar panels. What, what, you keep saying there's a number. Yeah. But, but what exactly? What action do you want? Are you saying commit to a certain number of electric vehicles, or or what is it in, in well, practice? Well, in, U- uh, in UK, in practice, they ha- they say that by the end of this year, they will have twenty five percent of ultra low emission car by the by the UK government uh, costlet. So that's a very clear numbers, and we want Hong Kong or something like that. Or uh, 2027 in UK, they will have 100% roadside emission-free car for the UK government fleet, and that's something Hong Kong can try. That's something Hong Kong we want them to have. And the number, the exact number, should be should be said by the government, not by us. But we are we are saying that the Hong Kong government do not have a number at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying they don't have a, they haven't set a target or a timetable, but uh, they are doing many, like many different uh, things to help reduce uh, carbon emissions. Um, did you look at their carbon reduction policies? I mean, they must have one, right? Yeah, they do have one, and they have a lot of measures that say say that there, but um, the measure did not is not quantifiable. You know, like um, they, like I said earlier, they just say they will reduce emissions, but by how much? Like. We, we need that. We need to have, because their goal is carbon neutrality. That means zero in 2050. And they have different measures, but it's not linked to, like, what are they going to achieve in 2050. So we need to see, like, how are they doing it step by step. The timeline is important. Like, how are we going to achieve uh, 2050 carbon neutrality and what we need to do in 2035? And that is stated in the um, climate action plan for the whole city. How about the government? Like we want them to take the lead. Right, and uh, you said you looked at the situation at uh, more than seventy departments. Uh, are some better than the others? Well, um, they are quite different, to be honest. Like some of them are quite well, and some of them are quite like a lack of information disclosing in the reports and the uh, reply of our questions. Um, but the sad part is, none of them has a clear target. None of them has clear target. A lot of them has measures saying that oh they would do certain things, but they are not measurable, like I said earlier, uh, including the environmental protection department. Like they are the environmental, they are the environmental protection department and don't have a carbon emission target that is clear to the public. And um, we think that the environmental protection department has to take leads to lead the. Um, government itself, like in, within the government, there is like so many departments, they should lead them and they should 
guide other departments like how to reduce carbon emission in Hong Kong within the government. So what are you uh, really uh, worried about? I mean, if they don't set this target, if they don't have a timetable, are you concerned that uh, this uh, carbon neutrality target uh, uh, cannot be met in uh, by uh, 2050? Well, we think that the 2050 carbon neutrality goal is a is quite a big goal for the society. We need a lot of different parties to work together. Like I said earlier, earlier the public, uh, the the government is the biggest stakeholder, and they should take the lead because they are the they are the one with the most power to set policy, to promote uh, policy, to make promises to the world as well. Like like the carbon neutrality promises. So we think the Hong Kong government should take lead. Right. Like without a good leader in such issue that is that big, then uh, it might, um, like the society might not be able to like go on the right track. And the, gov- the government can be a great role model for the whole society, especially business and also like general public like us. Yeah, you mentioned the UK earlier. Your study also mentioned Singapore. What is the Singapore government doing that we're not doing here? Well. Um, the very clear part, I would say, or like the one I said, earlier, is a very clear goal. Like, um, I do, we do believe that a very clear goal is very important. Um, the Singapore government has, like, also different uh, promises. Uh, like, uh, for example, they will have a new development, like, uh, area region. And that new development region will achieve an earlier goal as well. An early goal to match their net zero goal as well. Okay, you, you keep saying goal and targets and numbers, and you mentioned electric vehicles. Uh, what else other than electric vehicles? Are you, are you hoping that they commit to solar panels? What else in, in, in reality do you want the government to do? Well, we want more aggressive energy reduction goals from each department. We want such as like what? The- such as doing what? Are such you seeing solar, solar panels? Are you, are you saying... You know, maybe maybe just reduce the number of government vehicles altogether. Yes, that's altogether. And the the thing is, we are hard, for a general public or like as an NGO, it's hard to say. A, it's hard to give a number exactly for the government. They 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 have the role to make a goal for themselves. The thing the thing we're pointing out is that they don't have a goal for themselves, and they're not. Well, they think they do. They're not. They're not even disclosing enough data. Like none of the department has disclosed how much waste they're producing. Like that's that's one of the. I see. You want them to be more transparent. That's what you're saying. That's yes. a way. That's one of it. Yeah, there have to be more transparency on like how, how much they're damaging the environment and how are they going to uh, protect it from the other side. All right, uh, Mr. Ng, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Tom Ng, a Greenpeace campaigner. Many thanks also to you who emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and producer, Yuki. Now, here's the weather. It'll be mainly fine. The top temperature will be around 28 degrees. Winds moderate east to northeasterlies. And the outlook staying mainly fine and rather warm in the next couple of days. Right now, it's 24 degrees, relative humidity 79%. I'm Dr. Siu Kaka, pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged 6 months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death.